Hello, you're listening to the Drawing the Ideal Self podcast for January 2023. Today's episode came as a request from somebody on the mailing list. They asked if we could do something on laddering, so I'm going to give that a go. I'm going to use two particular texts for this episode. The first one is called Some Skills and Tools for Personal Construct Practitioners, and that's by Faye Francella. It's chapter 10 of her book, International Handbook of Personal Construct Psychology. It's a really great book with loads of useful chapters. And she goes through in this chapter a number of different things that you can use, including pyramiding um, and different methods. So I've taken some of the things that Faya said because I think she puts them very well. So let's start at the beginning. Laddering is a personal construct psychology tool, which is really useful in whatever way you practice PCP. So whether you're a clinician, you're in education, you're in marketing, it doesn't really matter. You'll find a use for it. Faye Francella said, It is difficult to decide whether laddering is a skill or a tool. It is really both, a very complex skill to learn and one of the most useful tools to have come from personal construct psychology. It is primarily used to elicit superordinate, more value-laden constructs from individuals. It is sometimes very useful to put one or two of these into a person's grid. When Dennis Hinkle first described this procedure, 1965, he did not call it laddering. It seems likely that Bannister and Mayer, 1968, coined that name. Hinkle called it the hierarchical technique for eliciting the superordinate constructs of the preferred self-hierarchy. She goes on to say, ever since Hinkle described the procedure, people have argued about how it should be carried out its usefulness and its validity. Does it really elicit superordinate personal constructs? The method he described is clear enough. You ask the person to say which pole of a construct he would prefer to describe himself and then ask why he prefers that pole rather than the other. What are the advantages of this side in contrast to the disadvantages of that side as you see it? One of Hinkle's people preferred to be reserved rather than emotional, because being reserved implied being relaxed, while emotional implied being nervous. Thus relaxed versus nervous is the first laddered superordinate construct. Hinkle then says that you ask the question, why does the person prefer to be relaxed rather than nervous? That is repeated until the person can produce no more constructs. These instructions are very general when one starts to try to ladder someone. So it is not surprising that there are differences of opinion about how one should do that. And Francella goes on to say that she had used it many, many, many times over her years of practice. And she says, to me, laddering is a complex skill and not a simple interviewing technique. The snag is that it looks simple, but it first of all requires the use of all three skills already mentioned. The ability to be a credulous listener to suspend one's own value system and thereby to be able to subsume the client's construing. 
It is in the process of laddering that one gets nearest to that experience of being almost a part of the other person. Larry Leitner talks of this as distance between two people. That can happen because one of the most important aspects of laddering is to be able to concentrate 100% on what the client is trying to say. Very often, clients find it increasingly difficult to put their more superordinate constructs into words and it is important to glimpse what they are struggling to convey. Francella goes on to say that she thinks it is useful to see laddering as a structured interview. It is structured in that one needs to ensure that the person does not stray away from the current ladder. It is structured also in the sense that the interviewer is definitely in charge and the client is not free to roam at will. It is definitely, in my view, not some free association exercise. I think it will be very important to keep the person self-focused. Why is it important for you to be? Otherwise, one can just get generalisations. The good thing about laddering is you can use it with anybody of any age. What you'll find is uh, the intellectual ability makes some difference. You know, however you want to measure that, whether that's by vocabulary or whatever. And the ability to convey things in words will make a difference. So you might have someone who's very clever, but they're not great with words. However, age is not a barrier. So I've used laddering with any age of person and found it really useful. What you'll find is that, um, you know, as a person's construct system develops, it becomes more and more complex. So if you're working with somebody who is very young, they're probably going to have fewer steps in a ladder and it will probably be that they use different kinds of vocabulary, which is much more concrete. So don't be put off if you work with children. You can still use laddering very successfully. Francella goes on to say, the first decision to be made is which construct to start the ladder on. A person may have provided perhaps 10 personal constructs from one of the elicitation procedures. If you're doing research, you will then have worked out a formula such as choosing the first, third and fifth elicited personal construct. If it is in the context of helping a person reconstruct, then I use three criteria. Two, or at the most three constructs to be laddered, should be relatively subordinate should look different from each other and look as if they are likely to develop my understanding of the client's construed world. The relative subordinacy of the constructs is, of course, a very evaluative choice. What is subordinate to me may well be superordinate to my client, but I will have learned a fair bit about the client from conversation and from the elicitation procedure. So I do not go for such constructs as respected, helpful or likeable as they are fairly superordinate to me already. But I might choose instead constructs such as studious, talkative or easygoing. And she goes on to describe um, an example of a ladder from her work with people who stutter. And this started with the construct nice personality versus disinterested in other people. And the person's preference was for a nice personality. So she asks, what are the advantages to you of being a nice personality? Person answers, people enjoy being with you. She goes on to say, whereas those who are disinterested in other people are not enjoyable to be with. Why is it important for you that people enjoy being with you? They're likely to open up to you. 
you get to understand them. Whereas here, one can indicate by gesture that you are looking for the opposite. They remain a closed book. That is very interesting. I'm just wondering why you like people to open up to you. Because it shows people are relaxed with you and trust you and respect you. Whereas if they remain a closed book, you never get to know them. People rarely open up to stutterers. And she says, so we ended up on the non-preferred pole, where the person actually lives. That example raises one of the questions most often asked. How do you know when to stop? I stop for two reasons. One was that I think it is not always useful to go beyond superordinates to do with trust and respect. The other was that he had come out with an idea he had never thought of before. His stutter was indeed very bad and he could see just what he was missing by being as he was. There could be little doubt that this revelation was disturbing to him and any further exploration would have been counterproductive for him. Now, that's what she means by being cautious, I think, because laddering can very quickly and easily uncover things that people may find distressing when they realise that that's the way they construe things. Or, as in this example, that the way they don't want to be is the way they actually are. And, you know, she urges people to be very careful with the use of laddering for this kind of reason. Francella goes on to say, another common question is, do you always ask for an opposite? My answer here is, it depends. It depends on how the interview is going. If it is running smoothly and the client clearly understands what he's supposed to be doing, I may only ask for an opposite at the end of every second or third rung. If the process is rather laboured, I find it good to ask for opposites more often. As in this case, it is not necessary to use words to elicit opposites. A hand movement with the word whereas will suffice. One of my personal rules when teaching laddering is that one should never ladder on the non-preferred pole of a construct. That pole nearly always has negative connotations and I feel I have little idea where it might ladder to. It is also likely to be a very depressing experience. People quite often give their replies in relation to the non-preferred pole, as in the example. There is no problem with that, but if the laddering is to continue, I think one should refer to the preferred side of the construct. So this reminds us that it's very important right at the beginning to find out which is the preferred side of a construct. And to do that, you just ask. Francella also says, another question concerns what does one do if the person comes up with more than one construct? In the example, the client gave three constructs at the end, so that did not matter. If that happened on a ladder that was to be continued, I would ask the person which best described the importance or the advantages of people opening up to you. One last point about the example, more words were spoken than appear in that text, but not a great many more. For me, conversation to do with the construing interferes with concentration and can easily turn into part of a therapy or counselling session. Of course, there is nothing wrong in using laddering that way, but if it is to be used as a shortcut to getting as much insight into the world of the client as possible in the shortest space of time, then the general conversation should be kept to a minimum. And I think I would definitely agree with that. 
when you're doing a ladder, it's important to keep on doing the ladder. So once you've started to try and stay there and keep the person on task and make sure that what you're recording is enough of what the person said. But you don't have to record every single um, or uh, you can just put dot, dot, dot for something like that. I think it's important to remember that as you get higher up the uh, construct hierarchy, you're going to find that your client has difficulty explaining themselves. So they'll need maybe more time to think. They might have false starts and say, well, I think it's like this. Oh, no, no, I mean, it's like that. So they may change their mind. They may also uh, do what I'm doing now and kind of, mm, how's the best way to put that into words? With something maybe that they have never said before. The second paper that I thought would be really useful is called The Use of Laddering, Techniques, Applications and Problems. And that's by Beverly Walker and Nadia Crittenden. And that's in Personal Construct Methodology, which is a book edited by Caputi, Viney, Walker and Crittenden. I'll put the details in the show notes. And they give a really nice example of a ladder. So they say, to illustrate laddering, it is usually helpful to begin with a relatively subordinate construct. With a relatively subordinate construct. To do this, we would focus on a fairly concrete domain. Let's try shoes. Firstly, we need to elicit a construct about shoes, so we might ask our participant to compare several pairs of shoes and indicate how two of these pairs are similar and different from another pair or pairs. Some might have laces, while others are slip-ons. There are two poles of our initial construct. We would then ask, which do you prefer? The conversation might then proceed. I prefer slip-ons. Why is that? They take less time to put on. What's the opposite of that? Taking more time. Why do you prefer taking less rather than more time? I can get more done. Why is it important for you to get things done? Because that helps you get on in the world. What's the opposite of getting on in the world? Not getting on. Being a failure. Why do you want to get on in the world? Because it makes me feel I'm worthwhile. As opposed to nothingness. Feeling I don't exist. And you can see with this example that starting from a very simple thing, whether shoes are easy to slip on, actually was very important to this person. It was connected to their core constructs. They don't want to waste time getting their shoes on. And why not? Because actually they want their life to have meaning. Another person might have a completely different reason for using the same construct. So a ladder is absolutely individual. It'll reflect that person's construing system. And two ladders, even starting from the same construct, are likely to be different for two different people. They make a useful point. They say that Web 2005 reported a range of steps in ladders between 3 and 16, with a mean of about 8. 
So that's practically important because when you're writing a ladder, you can choose to start at the bottom of a page. I tend to do that to remind myself that I'm going up the construct system. Some people start at the top and work down. Uh, I like to start at the bottom, but you do need to make sure you've got enough space on a piece of paper. And I would recommend that if you're writing it down, you want to be able to show that to the person afterwards and look at it together again. So ideally, you don't have it on a piece of paper you're going to turn over. You want it on two pieces of paper so that you can sit side by side if it goes on to the next page. So they describe laddering as a skill that needs practice rather than a formulaic routine. And they pick up a number of issues that are related to using a laddering approach. So the first one is about eliciting the second pole of a construct. And they say, with regard to the elicitation of the second pole of the construct, we have used the term opposite. However, we would make it clear to the interviewee that we were not necessarily interested in the dictionary opposite, but rather what they see as being different from the first pole or something that is not like the first pole. For example, if a first pole is identified as integrity, you could say, can you describe something, someone who doesn't have integrity? The answer might be someone who isn't honest or someone who isn't consistent, or it could be someone you can't trust, etc. Or you might ask, how would you describe a situation where there was no integrity? The answer might be a situation that's always changing or a situation that is contradictory or a situation that is dodgy, etc. So I think what they're saying here is sometimes you might need to think carefully about how you're asking that question. And it is important to make sure people don't just try and give you the answer that is most commonly used. So that can happen a lot if you start with constructs like uh, happy and sad. Say you're working with somebody who's depressed. You know, you want to get a, a construct that is probably not so high up the system. For most of us, happy and sad are going to be pretty core constructs. So we want something that is nearer the bottom, if you like, of the construct system. So you might start with, let's say, tired and energetic. I mean, that's going to go further up the construct system than happy and sad probably will. So you'll have more steps in your ladder. I think happy and sad are probably a very common pairing. Uh, so if you want something that is less common, you need to think carefully what you're asking people and make sure that you say to them, you know, don't think of whatever the most common opposite might be. I'm asking you about your opposite. And it might not be the same as the most common opposite. They go on to say, what about people who don't express a preference? Because each time you're going up a step, you're going to be asking which side do you prefer of this construct? If they say, I really don't know, I don't have a preference, you might need to put some context to that. So in the example they gave for shoes, it, it might be that um, the construct high heels versus flats needs a context around it, such as for going out to a nightclub or walking down to the shops. And they say, while this might seem arbitrary to some, given the focus on superordinate construing or values, it is access to the system 
that is of importance, not the point of entry. Uh, they've taken that from Bourne and Jenkins, 2005. So it, you, what you're trying to do is get into that construing system because what you're going to be finding is how those constructs are connected together. They go on to uh, quote Francella, actually, the quote that I gave earlier about using the preferred pole and being cautious about laddering from the non-preferred pole because it may end up as a miserable situation. They talk about problems with the why question. They say problems can also occur when the why question does not seem quite appropriate. Or the interviewee finds it difficult to articulate the answer, but it is clear that the top of the ladder has not yet been reached. In cases where this results in a block, it has been useful to ask instead, what does that mean for you? The following script provides an example. You've identified the construct happiness versus being fearful, with happiness as the preferred pole. Why is it important for you to be happy? Because when I'm happy, I do things well. And why is it important for you to do things well? Because then I feel viable. And why is it important for you to feel viable? Long pause. Uh, um, well, uh, can you tell me what being viable means for you? Well, it means that I'm contributing. Being really there, um, significant. Uh, not empty. The what does it mean for you question has quickly yielded not only one but several answers. They go on to talk about what happens if you're in a situation like this where you've got a number of answers as the contrast pole and basically you need to choose which one you're going to use. They suggest it is useful to base your initial choice on the most concrete of the constructs as this often leads back to the others anyway. They go on to talk about something interesting, which is utilising emotions to overcome a block. And they say another way of proceeding when the why question results in a block is to ask the question, how does that make you feel? Whereas a person can't always immediately verbalise an interpretation of something, talking about feelings has proven useful and can lead back to the why is that important question. The following script provides an example. The construct being laddered was sensitive versus less concerned with others' opinions, putting less weight on them. And the preferred pole in this case was the less concerned side of that. So they ask, could you tell me why it is important to be less concerned with others' opinions? Well, it lessens the rumination cycle. And why is it important to lessen the rumination cycle? because I tend to get stuck. And why is it important not to get stuck? So I don't waste time and energy. And why is it important not to waste time and energy? Pause. I feel that energy is limited, so I need to choose wisely. And why is that important? So I don't collapse. And that is important because well, I don't want to fall apart. It takes a lot of time and energy to put myself back together. And it's no fun. And there is no forward momentum. The next question, going with fun and momentum as the most concrete construct. And why is it important to have fun and momentum? Pauses. Well, 
Life needs light and shade. Momentum means development. At this point, the interviewee was clearly exploring their own sense of what this meant and finding it hard to articulate. So to assist and continue, the how does this make you feel question was posed, utilising emotions as a way forward. Can you tell me how it makes you feel when there's no fun and momentum? It feels like a black room, no sound or feeling. And how does that make you feel? Nothing to relate to, absence of stimuli, death of soul. Why is it important to have fun and momentum? So I don't stagnate, so I move on. At this stage, the top of the ladder was visible, yielding the core construct, moving forward with fun and momentum versus stagnating, death of soul. And once again, the construct is full of meaning. It it can be seen as the basis for many potential decisions for this interviewee. The how does it make you feel question provided a way forward and then back to the why question. They say overall the emotion question usually works well in parallel with the why question, giving added perspective and meaning to the constructs along the way on both paths and to the core constructs obtained. Finally, they talk about recognising the top of the ladder. And this is something that, that people often wonder about. How do you know when you are at the top of the ladder? So they say knowing when to stop reaching for more may depend on the context. In a clinical context, where the impact of the exploration can be carefully monitored, it may be important to push further, whereas in the research context, ethical concerns would necessitate caution. The upper ends of the ladders are often surprising to both the interviewee as well as the interviewer. Indeed, in some cases, they may be unwelcomely disturbing and so need to be very carefully handled. They have a suggestion for what you might do if people are feeling a bit alarmed by what they've revealed. And that's going back to something a bit more concrete in the ladder um, and talking about whether the ladder has turned out as they might have expected. So trying to move slightly away from the detail that you've elicited just at that moment and get back to something that's a bit more comfortable to discuss. In conclusion, they say, when they're talking about what's happened in this chapter, what is difficult to convey, however, is the nature of the personal interaction that occurs. It is well to keep in mind that while the technique seems simple, it has powerful undercurrents. It is not unlike being aware that the surf that looks so easy to swim in can cloak a deep, swift rip that can pull you far out to sea. Such can be the experience of eliciting a ladder in a situation where you're not listening carefully enough to what your client, interviewee, is expressing. Within moments, you can be in deep water psychologically, borne along by the interviewee's emotions and perceptions. So these authors are also saying, use laddering, but use it really carefully. Think what you're doing, and when you're doing it, pay absolute attention to the person that you're working with. If you don't, you may miss something, but also if you don't, you may not notice that things are becoming uncomfortable for them and you either need to pause or you need to acknowledge that or you need to stop at that point. 
in my experience of using laddering with children and young people, some interesting things have happened. So I have found out things that I had no idea about in terms of uh, why something is not working. Um, and as an example, I worked with a boy who um, had been quite depressed and he was feeling a lot better. So he wasn't depressed anymore, that was for sure. And he was coming to the point of being discharged. And when we discussed that, he didn't want to be discharged. And he said, you can't do that uh, because I'm not OK. And I said, you know, you are. If you think about how things were before, things are very different. And we went through what was different. And he said, yes, those things are, but there's still something else. And we talked about that and used the ladder. And what it turned out was that the reason he couldn't be discharged was that he was terrified he was going to end up like his uncle who had um, committed some crimes. Now, in our general conversation, that his uncle had not been mentioned as being relevant to anything. But what he was scared of is that he would turn out like his uncle and end up in prison. So we discussed that and it had come out of a ladder uh, and it, I think, had surprised him that he could put into words what it was he was so bothered about. So having heard what these authors have said, there's a message of caution, but there's also a message that actually laddering turns up some really interesting things about people's construing system. The first is that some constructs are more important than others. And those constructs are going to be higher up a ladder. The second is that laddering works as a technique to very quickly find some of those things out. So you need to be prepared for that. So practicing with yourself is a good idea. So you could take something that's bothering you. So I did one recently about sleep uh, and why it was important to me to have a good night's sleep. Actually, what was near the top of the ladder was the meaning of life stuff of, uh, you know, that sleep mattered because I could get things done when I was awake. And the more awake I was, the better. So getting to sleep earlier actually did really matter. And having a good night's sleep in order to facilitate wakefulness and do lots of things that were interesting and fun. It wasn't difficult to do that. It didn't take me any longer than 10 minutes at the most, probably five. So you could take something that's a problem for you and look at why that is using laddering. So you can just practice yourself. The other thing you could do is if you're working somewhere and there's a few of you using PCP, you could use it to practice with each other. Now, if you're going to do that, be very aware that things may be revealed in a ladder that someone didn't intend revealing. So you need an agreement about confidentiality, and particularly if you're doing it in a team situation where you're working together. And you also need to be careful with the other person's information. So I would usually, if I was in that situation, I would give them the ladder when it's written down rather than me keeping it. And I would also have that agreement that, you know, it doesn't go any further than this situation. I mean, it's a conversational approach, so you don't have to write it down. The only thing is, if you don't write it down, how are you going to remember that information? Because you may want to look at it again. So I would suggest it's better if you do write it down, but just remember who that information belongs to. So if you're working with somebody, you can give it to them. Um, obviously, if you're working in a clinical or educational or whatever 
way so as a professional you're going to look after that information very carefully according to your usual procedures anyway but people might want a copy of it particularly if it throws up something that is interesting to them and sort of took them by surprise but wasn't distressing so remember that you may find out things that upset people that they didn't realize was such a problem sometimes you can get a kind of illuminating moment when I was doing my ladder, one of the things that I realised afterwards, it explained why I would want the life support stuff turned off if I was in a coma. Because being in a coma, to me, is like being dead because I can't do anything. It just kind of went ping and I got that now. And that was what it was that bugged me about it so much. So I, now I can explain to people in my family what it is I want and why. Whereas before that, I could explain what I wanted, but couldn't properly explain why very easily. The other thing to think about is whether you're going to go up the page or down the page. Uh, I mentioned that before, but just be ready with extra pieces of paper. And remember, don't write on the back of them. Keep all your writing on a new sheet on the front so you can put them out at the end and have a look at the whole ladder. So I suggest that you go away and try it and see what happens. You could look up those references. I'll put the details in the show notes. Um, there are a couple of chapters which are easy read. They're, you know, they're well written, but they're not especially technical and they may be very useful to you. You should be able to get those books from most libraries, actually, because they're quite substantial texts in PCP. So good luck with that. And I will see you again at the end of February. OK, bye.